So what are your family's Christmas Eve traditions? What, do you, what did you do on Christmas Eve? I know a big part for me and my family, obviously, is church on Christmas Eve. Hopefully, that's a part of your tradition as well. But once the, the services are over on Christmas Eve, usually we like to get dinner as a family and then go out one last time before Christmas, drive around, look at the Christmas lights together. And then as we get home and the kids get put down for the night, I will traditionally end up on the couch watching It's a Wonderful Life. It's a part of my Christmas Eve tradition. And if you haven't seen it, there's going to be some spoilers, but the movie came out in 1946, so that's kind of on you at this point. Um, But it tells the story of George Bailey, and he grows up with big dreams of traveling the world and building skyscrapers and really being somebody and doing something big with his life. When in reality, a combination of circumstance and responsibility keeps him tied down in his small town of Bedford Falls and working at the old family business, the building and loan. He wants the glamorous job in the big city and he's stuck doing the small time job in the small town. And no matter what he tries to do to get out of it, right, he he remains stuck in it. And finally, some things go very wrong in his job, not his fault, but he reaches a point in his life where he is very discontent. He's looking at his wife saying things like, why do we have to have all these children? Husbands, try saying that to your wife. See how that goes over this afternoon. Not not very well. He looks around at their home and says, why do we have to live in this drafty old house? Right? Basically says things to his wife to give the impression, why did you marry a loser like me? And he ends up feeling so low that he's standing on a bridge looking down into the icy waters below, thinking about jumping. When enters the story, Clarence Oddbody, the angel has been sent to rescue George Bailey. And he gives George this vision of what the world would have been like if he had never been born. And through that dark and kind of eerie vision, George really realizes that he actually had a wonderful life. Hence the name of the movie. And when he was restored to the real world and to his senses, you know, he's ecstatic. He runs down the street, hello, Bedford Falls, and he starts shouting Merry Christmas to anyone and everything, running into his home. And instead of complaining about his children, grabbing them and hugging them and and kissing them, running around his home saying, look at this beautiful, drafty old house, right? His perspective has changed, and it really is a magical film moment. If you haven't seen It's a Wonderful Life, what lame Christmas movies are you watching? I mean, come on. It's time to give this one a watch if you haven't seen it. But as magical as it is, there's some problems. For starters, some inaccurate theology, right? Angels are a real thing. That ain't it, right? That's not how it works. Every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings, yeah, not in the Bible, right? Not an accurate depiction of who angels are, what they do. Also, you just have to admit, this is not a real story. This is a contrived Hollywood uh, story. This is like, you know, Christmas cheese ball movie at its finest, which is why it's better than the Christmas cheese ball movies that you're watching, right? But uh, give it. But that's what it is. It's, it's Hollywood. It's not real. So the question I want to ask is, is that wonderful life perspective possible? Is it possible to change your view from being dark and grumpy and hating your life and where you are to actually realizing it's a wonderful life and enjoying it? Well, the answer we're going to find is a resounding yes, but we're definitely not going to learn it from Hollywood or from George Bailey. We're going to learn it from the Bible and King Solomon. So please take your Bibles and open them up now to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and today we're going to look at chapter 1, verse 12, all the way through the end of chapter 2. This will be the longest section we look at in our study of Ecclesiastes, and I think you'll see why as we need to get to the punchline again at the end of this section. It fits together as a unit, and normally on your sermon note sheet, we print the passage for you. If we did that today, there would be no room for you to take notes. Uh, So what we did there was put kind of an outline of the passage, and we're going to walk through it one part at a time to get a sense, really, we're going to follow Solomon on a journey today. And we want to walk through each part of that journey. So let's look at the first part, what I want to call the limits of wisdom. The limits of wisdom. Look with me as I read. 
verses 12 through 18. It says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So here, again, if we're wondering why we think Ecclesiastes is written by King Solomon, he talks about being king over Jerusalem and acquiring more wisdom, uh, great wisdom, all over all who were before him in Jerusalem. That's where we see really the identity of Solomon. But he makes it clear he's going on a quest in this passage. He's going to go search. He's going to go on a seek and search mission by wisdom. And what he's trying to search out, he wants to look, as it says there, it's an unhappy business that God has given the children of man. Why is life so unhappy? Why is life so hard? I'm going to get really wise, and I'm going to figure all of that out. That's the mission that he's going on, and it doesn't take him very long to realize that's a failure of a mission. As he says, that is vanity, which again, the word we should think of is that picture of mist, Right? Mist coming out of the humidifier. That's what he's saying this is. And striving after wind. That's a new picture he's giving us to, to give that, that sense of vanity or mist or short. You know, hey, go out after the service and try to get a whole big bag of wind. How's that going to go for you? It's not. That doesn't stop some of us from acting like windbags from time to time. But that's a different sermon for a different day. You can't go strive after the wind. You can't go get a fistful of the wind just like you can't go get a fistful of the mist. It's not possible. And so why does he say that this doesn't work, this quest that he's on? Well, he gives us a proverb, a short pithy statement there in verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. He's saying no amount of wisdom can fix all the problems that are out there in the world. And even we're going to see later in Ecclesiastes, that's partly because it's God who has made things crooked. And if you're like, well, I I did that Bible reading plan, Pastor, and I read Genesis 1, and it said it was very good. Why are we calling it crooked? Well, did you get to Genesis chapter 3? Right? We fall into sin, and God curses the world. And all of us, were living in a post-Genesis 3 world. We are living in a cursed world that God has made crooked, and no amount of wisdom is going to fix all of that. I don't care how much you know or how wise you are, can you stop tornadoes, hurricanes, wildfires, or other natural disasters? Can you stop deadly diseases? Can you put an end to all the corruption in all the governments in the world for once and for all? Can you do that by knowing enough? Solomon says, no, we can't make it straight what is crooked and what is lacking cannot be counted. How can you count what you don't even know is supposed to be there? And this is coming from the guy that had more wisdom than anyone before or since. And if he's saying that, how much more should we learn it? And not only does he say that, he goes on to say, not only did I not fix my life or fix the world with all these things, I actually made my life worse And that's what he gets to in the second proverb, for in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I actually was worse off in my life because now I was more frustrated because I knew more about how things should be, but I couldn't fix it still. So I was just more frustrated. The lesson we need to learn here, point number one this morning, admit the limits of knowing the right answer. Admit the limits of knowing the right answer. And this is where we need to be careful. You as a reader and me as a preacher of Ecclesiastes, you can't take every statement out of the context and take it to its extreme. Because if you just look at verse 18, you might say, wow, wisdom is worthless. 
And that's not what he's saying. We'll even see in chapter 2, he'll speak of the value of wisdom. All he is talking about here is saying limit. wisdom has its limits. It is a good thing. We have to know what it's good for and what it is not good for. And what he's saying is you will not solve every problem in your life or in the world by knowing the right answer. It won't work. And that's where we think, well, we live in the information age. I've got all the information in the world right there at my fingertips. And Solomon said, well, actually, there's nothing new under the sun, but good luck. Go ahead, try, knock yourself out with that. But even with all this information, we can't solve all the problems in the world. But it's tempting to think otherwise. It's tempting for us to think if I just read one more article or click one more link or watch one more video, then I will know the answer. And I'll be able to fix all the problems in my life, in my community, and in my world. And Solomon is saying, no, you won't. That's not how it works. And again, these are good things. I would strongly recommend you stay informed about what's going on in the world. There is value in knowing what's going on in the world, but realize that there are limits to that. And even in our knowledge or wisdom, even there, you'll run into this concept of the law of diminishing returns, right? If you're familiar with that concept, right, the more you do something, kind of the less you get out of it. To put it in a language we can all understand, imagine eating a Snickers bar. That's pretty good, right? Now imagine eating a second Snickers bar. Still pretty good. Now we're cracking open Snickers bar number three. Each bite starts to get a little less and less appealing, and by you get By the time you get to Snickers bar four, it's like a net negative, right? The law of diminishing returns. Like you can have too much of a good thing. You don't always get the same out of it. And we need to realize that even with knowledge and information, that that's not going to solve every problem. And at some point, we're not really getting anything out of it. We can even take that kind of mindset with things like theology. And if I just read one more theology book, or if I just know a little more and I can give a better explanation of the intricacies of the Trinity or how God's sovereignty and human responsibility work out, then the world will be a better place, right? We can start to think that way. We, we study things like psychology or sociology to ask and answer, hopefully, the questions, why do people do what they do? We study history and think, well, if I know what happened in the past, I can make sure I don't repeat it. And all of those things, obviously knowing information, clearly studying theology, uh, studying the humanities, history, they all have their place. But we can overdo it and we can start to think that somewhere in there is the silver bullet that will fix all the problems in the world when that just does not exist in those things. And in the end, you might actually end up like Solomon, just more frustrated than when you started out. And that might actually be a good litmus test for us to say, hey, am I putting those things in their proper places or am I trying to get more out of them than I could? Well, okay, when you study theology or when you look out and try to be informed about the world, what is the end result? Does it, at the end of it, are you more on fire for Christ, more uh, trusting of him, more eager to serve the people around you to share the gospel, or are you just more angry and frustrated? What's the result? That might be the, the litmus test we need to look at to say, hey, am I processing these things in a healthy biblical way or not? But admit the limits of knowing the right answer. It's a good thing, but it's not everything. And so frustrated with this failed quest, Solomon shifts gears and tries something else. And we'll see that in section two, in chapter two from verses one through 11. And I'm gonna call this the limits of earthly pleasures. And a lot of these things you're gonna see here, they're not bad things in and of themselves. They're just the the pleasures that you can experience in this world. Let's follow Solomon on this journey. Look at the first few verses in chapter 2. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity, mist. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. In this section, he's basically saying, I am going to try everything the world 
has to offer. I'm going to try pleasure. And that could be a variety of things. And pleasure is, I mean, the Bible says that God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. Pleasure in and of itself is not a bad thing. But he's saying just going out and trying to pursue pleasure is missed. It's, it's like striving after the wind. And I think probably all of us have lived enough life even to realize that. I mean, can you go out and just grab pleasure, have fun or pleasure on command? No, it's actually something that's kind of elusive sometimes that, that you realize, oh, I'm actually enjoying this. And then by realizing that you're enjoying it, well, now you're not enjoying it anymore. Like, it, it, it's a hard thing. If we could just go out and have pleasure on command, you would think people would be more happy, but it's actually proving hard to find pleasure. It, it doesn't work, he says. He speaks of laughter and says it's mad. Pleasure, what use is it? I mean, laughter, there's a place in the Christian life for good, clean fun and throwing your head back and having that really good gut laugh, right? But you can't live off of that. That's not what life is all about. And even the pursuit of that as the end goal will drive you mad. Think of how many comedians whose job it is to make people laugh are some of the most depressed people you'll find in our society. And so he tries wine, another symbol of pleasure and even of success and, and bounty. And again, that's not a bad thing in and of itself. The Bible doesn't condemn alcohol, but if you think that's the secret to a good life, no, it's not. And in fact, in our culture, we see a lot of people pursuing that and abusing what God has made and having all kinds of destruction in their life as a result. But in all of this, as it says in verse 3, he's trying to find out what is good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So he shifts gears again. He goes from kind of these kind of pleasures to a different kind of pleasure, really the, the pleasure of being successful and accomplishing things. Look at verses 4 through 6. I made great works I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I mean, we live in a growing community, basically saying, I became a developer and I built some of the biggest, baddest, coolest things around. And we know from history, Solomon did do that. He accomplished some amazing things. And as a result of that success and that accomplishment, he acquired wealth. And that's the picture you see in verses 7 and 8. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. Right, Slaves and flocks. I mean, that was the capital of the ancient world. Those were the symbols of success. Maybe we can relate more to some in verse 8. I gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. All, again, symbols of wealth. You know, if you want music on in the background this afternoon, it's pretty simple. You pull out your phone, or you open up your computer, and you press play. 3,000 years ago, music in the background was a little bit trickier, right? There were no speakers. There was no recording. You had to have live musicians. They all had to have acoustic instruments. They all had to have skill. And to get all that, they, you needed money. Music in the background was exclusively for extremely rich people. It was for kings and people like that in the ancient world. He had it all. Speaks of concubines. We know that Solomon had hundreds of wives and concubines. And again, is it wrong to have a spouse? No. Is it wrong to desire pleasure from romance and intimacy with that spouse? No, but clearly Solomon took that to places that God never intended, and it did not fulfill him in the end. And that's what you get the sense of in verses 9 through 11. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. So he's saying, I didn't hold my anything back. I had tried everything the world had to offer. And there was, so I enjoyed a lot of those things. But when he gets to verse 11, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind 
and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Now, when he says gain there, that should ring our bell, ring in our minds a bell from last week, chapter 1, verse 3, when he asks, what does man gain by all his toil at which he toils under the sun? And the implied answer is nothing. And the meaning of the word gain is having something left over after it all. And he's saying, I tried all these pleasures. What did I have left over after it all? Nothing. I had nothing in the end. I might have had some fun. I might have had some pleasurable experiences, but it didn't ultimately put me ahead of everybody else. It didn't ultimately deliver the good life and meaning like I thought that it would. And that's one of the good things about studying the Bible is you don't have to learn everything in life the hard way. Have you learned some things the hard way? I think we all could nod our heads at that. We've learned some things the hard way. But the benefit of God's word is we can learn from other people learning things the hard way, right? We can look at what Solomon did and say, I don't need to make the same mistake. I can skip this search that he went on. Let's put that down for point number two. Skip the search for lasting satisfaction in temporary pleasures. Skip the search for lasting satisfaction in temporary pleasures. And I don't care what age you are here today. There's something freeing about this for all of us, whether you're old or middle-aged or, or young. I think there might be a special benefit. There's sometimes where Ecclesiastes does call out young people. Hey, high school students, college students in the room this morning. Uh, think about this. Don't, you don't need to make these mistakes like some of People that are older here may have, right? You, you can skip that. The world cannot offer you lasting satisfaction in these temporary things. And again, laughter, uh, all these different things, they're not necessarily evil in and of themselves. But if you start thinking, that's what will make my life good, or that's what will make my life better, that's a trap. That's not a good way to think. And that brings us back even to that idea we talked about last week that we need to stop pretending. Stop pretending that if I could just get to this mountaintop of success that I want to get to in my career, then I'll have made it. Or if I can just make a little bit more and we can eat out a little bit more often and go on a little nicer vacations, then we will have arrived. Then we will really enjoy life. No, that's a fool's way of thinking. Solomon says, I've tried it all. You don't gain anything from it in the end. So he's tried wisdom and tried figuring everything out. He's tried pleasure and, and doing everything the world has to offer, and neither of those things have delivered. Why? And that's what he's going to get to in section three. He's going to come back to wisdom. He's going to come back to pleasure and really the idea of being successful. And now he's going to drill down a level deeper into why those things cannot satisfy. Look at the first part where he comes back to wisdom uh, starting in chapter 2, verse 12. It says, So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same events happen to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. So there he comes back to wisdom. And like I said, don't take everything in extreme because he speaks of the value of wisdom. It's better to have light than darkness. I love how he puts it in verse 14. The wise person has his eyes in his head. That's a good thing. I like having my eyes in my head. But the fool walks in darkness. Think about driving. Would you rather drive with your eyes wide open or would you rather drive blindfolded? Now, I know some of you would rather be blindfolded as a passenger so you don't have to see your spouse driving, uh, but that's something different. When you are driving, 
Would you rather have your eyes open or a blindfold? I'm hoping we're all saying eyes open, please. Great. Does that mean you're never going to have any trouble on the roads? No, because there's things you can't control. There's all these other drivers on the road. There's all these crazy drivers who just moved here from California, and they are going to hit your car, right? Even though you had your eyes wide open. Or you might get a flat tire, or you might have mechanical problems that you can't control. There might be road conditions, right? It's better to have your eyes open, but that doesn't promise perfection in everything. And that's what he is saying. It's better to be wise than to be a fool. It's better to have your eyes in your head than to walk in darkness, but you still can't control everything. There's a lot in your life that you can't control. And the big example that he gives of that is death. You can't control everything in your life and you can't control death. The wise person and the fool are both going to die. So point number three, what he's trying to explain to us is accept the vastness of what you cannot control. You need to humbly admit there is so much in the world, there is so much in my world, in my life, that I cannot control. The same thing happens to both the wise and the fool, and the ultimate example is death. And he reminds us of that very inspiring, uplifting message we learned last week, nobody is going to remember you, right? As it says there in verse 16, in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten, right? That's what's going to happen, and you can't control it. So he gets to verse 17, so I hated life. We can probably all relate to that on some level, being frustrated by what we see around us and getting to that point where we sigh and say, oh, I hate my life, right? You've texted that to somebody when you were frustrated about something. And so now he comes back to work again and and his toil, which again was something he was finding, seeking to find pleasure in and fulfillment and accomplishment in. In verse 18, he says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be the master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. That's what he is saying. And again, his work wasn't bad in and of itself. He's just realizing, what am I going to have at the end of it? At the end of it, I'm going to have nothing, and even worse, I'm going to have to pass it off to somebody else. I put my blood, sweat, and tears into this. I worked hard for this. I did a good job. And now I'm going to have to give it to somebody else that's not going to care about it like I did. And even worse, they might just straight up be a fool. They might actually waste and ruin everything I worked so hard for. I hate my life. See what he's getting to there? He's frustrated. And in fact, not only that, what did I get from it? Well, I got a lot of stress. I got a lot of sorrow. I had nights I couldn't sleep because I was so consumed with work and building something bigger and better. And in the end, I'm going to have to pass it off to somebody else. And again, a lot of our vexation, a lot of our frustration really comes from that desire to control. And he's worked really hard to control his world, but when he starts to realize the reality that he's actually not in control and it's all going to end up being given to somebody else, he despairs. He despises his life and what happens under the sun. And again, this is not where we want to end. Uh, Just thinking about the futility of so many of these things. And one passage that might help us turn the corner is if you turn with me, keep a finger in Ecclesiastes, but turn with me to Psalm 127. He is frustrated 
because he is realizing all that he cannot control. And it's driving him crazy. It's driving him to despair. But there is another way to look at things. And Solomon was no stranger to this different perspective. Look at Psalm 127. It tells us who wrote it. Who wrote Psalm 127? Solomon. And look at what he says here in these first two verses. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. There's one perspective that tries to control everything. That leads to frustration and despair. There's another perspective that trusts that God is in control of everything. And that leads to peace and sweet sleep given by God. What's your perspective? You trying to control everything or you resting in the reality that God is controlling everything? And it's that that starts to help us make the pivot as we get into chapter 2 and we look at those last three verses, 24 through 26. This is the happy part. This is George Bailey running down the street. This is the aha moment. Look at these verses with me when he says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. So here he comes to realize, wait, there is a way to enjoy life. And there's two different perspectives. If you view life as a means of gain for yourself, get used to disappointment and despair and frustration. But if, on the other hand, you view life as a gift from a sovereign God, you will find enjoyment. If you think, I can manipulate the world around me and use it to my advantage and somehow become king of my own little kingdom, that's not going to work out. There's no meaning. There's nothing to gain from that. But in learning to accept what I can't control and accepting that God is in control, I can learn to enjoy what he puts in front of me each day. Point number four, enjoy the gifts of a sovereign God. Enjoy the gifts of a sovereign God. He has told us life is a mist. That's the idea behind vanity. And one of the images I gave you to think about is right after you blow out that candle and there's the smoke and it's there. And personally, I love that smell of the, you know, the candle that's just been blown out, right? And it's there, but then it's, it's gone, right? That's what life is like. And Solomon is saying there's two approaches you can take to that. One approach is, wow, this is really good. How do I get more of it? How do I make it bigger? How do I make it better? I know I'll get 50 candles and light them all and blow them all out at the same time and just inhale all of it. And he's saying that doesn't work. You don't gain anything from that. But the other approach that you could take is blow out the candle and that smelled good. Thanks, God. That, that's the alternative that he is providing. Instead of how can I make it better? How can I get more? how can I just thank God for what I have? That's what he is saying. And that's one isolated instant. He's saying that's how you should live your life. You should live your life that way. Because this week is gonna happen. All those things we talked about last week, that the world is gonna keep turning. The sun is gonna keep rising. The, the wind is going to keep blowing. The rivers are going to keep flowing. And next thing you know, you're going to be right back here sitting in the exact same seat, listening to the same guy talk, right? Well, there will be another week. So how are you going to live that week? How can I get more? How can I make it bigger? How can I make it better? 
or thanks, God. Thanks for whatever it is that you put in front of me. How are you going to approach your life this week? And that's where Ecclesiastes gets a little weird or strange because you're sitting there thinking, my pastor just told me to go out and enjoy life this week. Is that okay? Right? Am I really allowed to do that? No, that's exactly what God is telling you to do. But it's not saying it in some kind of humanistic carpe diem, just eat, drink, and be merry kind of way. Look, God is at the center of everything that he says in these last few verses. He says, there is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. It's when he starts to understand God and his involvement that he actually learns to enjoy. And as it says in verse 25, for apart from him, apart from God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? This is not something you'll be able to do unless God is at the center of your heart and the center of your life. That's why last week we looked at the beginning verses, but we also looked at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. That is the whole duty of man. When you do that, when God is at the center of your life, your perspective starts to shift. First and foremost, because you realize the sovereignty of God. And you learn to admit, I can't control everything, but there is a God who can, and there is a God who is controlling everything. And so then I can learn to accept the things that he gives me with gratitude, and I can learn really what so much of the world is looking for in being content. And notice even what he lists here aren't the pleasures of success and and all the things the world has to offer. He talks about even what we would call the mundane, enjoying eating and drinking and going to work, being content with those things. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Now remember, one of the key words that we've seen so far in Ecclesiastes is gain. Chapter 1, verse 3, and then at the end there of his quest for pleasure, in chapter 2, verse 11, he says there's nothing gained. There was nothing left over. Well, let's look how that same word is used in this passage, in 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 6 says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. That's where the gain is. Not looking for something more, but being content with what you have and starting with godliness. I'm pursuing God. That's what's most important to me. And then I'm receiving what he gives me. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. If you're doing the Bible reading plan with us, that sounds a lot like Job. Naked I came, naked I'm going to go. God gives, God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But if we have good jobs and nice houses and a reliable car and and good benefits package and vacation, with these we will be content. Is that what verse 8 says? No, but if we have food and clothing, the basic, the daily, the mundane, with those things, we will be content. That's the the, the secret that he is trying to teach us. But then as he goes on to say in verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Right? Always wanting more, that is a dangerous game. One commentary I read this week referred to some fictional scene from a TV show where one character says to the other, you're the richest man I know. And then the rich guy responds by saying, yeah, but I would trade it all for just a little bit more, right? Nobody wins that rat race. God is teaching us that the winning, the contentment, the satisfaction comes in enjoying what God has already given you. And even as you look back at Ecclesiastes 
here. Again, he says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. These are the basics that he is talking about. Are you enjoying just the basic, simple things that God has given to you? Did you have breakfast this morning? And if you did, I mean, I don't care if it was, well, all I had was, you know, the, the last few Honey Nut Cheerios in the box and a little bit of milk and one of those, like, Folgers K-cups of coffee, which I can see the coffee snobs. You're, like, physically recoiling, like I just hurt you just by mentioning that, right? But Solomon's saying what's good is enjoying that. Because Solomon's saying, I've had all the best chefs. I've had the baristas. I've had the best of the best of the best. But guess what? There's nothing at the end of all of that where there's something is enjoying what God has given you. And then the other thing he talks about is finding enjoyment in your toil, your daily tasks, your work. And you might say, well, pastor, my job could be better. Really? Join the club, right? Every single one of us could look at our daily tasks in life and give you a long list of grievances and ways it could be better. All of us. But what he's saying is, hey, are you dead? Are you sick? Are you hospitalized? No, you're healthy. You can get up and go out and do something and work and earn a living to support your family and hopefully provide a service or good to somebody else. Enjoy that. Thank God for that. Trying to get more, trying to get better, It's a fool's game. Enjoying what you have is godly. This is because the only way you can do that is if God is at the center of your perspective. People have talked more and more about this idea of living your best life. I mean, at one point, your best life now was like the best-selling book in the Christian section of the bookstore. And I remember one time walking into Barnes & Noble saying, hey, what's all the fuss about? Opening it up and reading two pages and being like, Yikes, this is not what I remember reading in the Bible. Uh, You know, because he's saying, hey, if you just have faith, if you just believe that dream beach house in Maui, it could be yours. And I'm thinking, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. In this world, you will have, I, I don't remember seeing that. It's bad theology. But then we see it just more generally in the world. You know, you'll see somebody, oh, look at that guy. He's living his best life. And usually when they're pointing at somebody saying that, they're doing something really to indulge in the earthly pleasures, right? Oh, they just bought a new car. Oh, look at them. They got a big bowl of ice cream. That kid's living his best life. It's something about the earthly pleasures. And Solomon is saying, hey, you want your best life now? God is saying, well, one thing you would remind us is your best life is actually going to come later in eternity. But if you really want your best life right now, It's definitely not going to come through bad theology. It's not going to come through just indulging in all the worldly pleasures. It's going to come through by being content with what you have. Enjoying the simple things, eating and drinking and your toil as from the hand of God, as a gift from God. And verse 26 actually gets very, very interesting. It's kind of connected with Verse 25, the idea is without God, you actually can't really enjoy things. And it kind of builds on that in verse 26. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after wind. It's interesting, the the sinner, all they're doing is gathering up stuff to give to the one who pleases God. What in the world is that talking about? Well, I think some of that is eschatological when you think about how things are ultimately gonna end and who's gonna end up where, but I think some of it is really right now. Who are the ones that can actually enjoy life the way God designed it to be lived? Only the people that are fearing God and keeping his commandments. Only those, as we would now kind of look at it from our perspective, who have turned from their sin and put their faith in Christ. They're the only ones that have been reconciled to their creator. They're the only ones that can truly enjoy life and put things into their proper places because we've put God first. If you can't do that, nothing else will have the right perspective. One author, uh, I thought, put it really well, commenting on this passage, he says, you know, there's two different gifts. You know, a can of peaches and a can opener are two different gifts. And everybody in the world has been given a can of peaches, but only to the believer 
has been given the can opener, right? And so the world is going around, whoa, look at this. How do I get more of this? Let's get a bunch of cans. Let's get a whole garage full of cans. And we're sitting there with our can opener being like, this is delicious, right? We're enjoying what God has given instead of just seeking more. We're enjoying life the way God designed it to be lived. And the world is running around trying to get more, running around like chickens with their heads cut off. And we're being content and enjoying what God has given. And it's even so much so that really the world is running around doing things that are going to end up benefiting us because we're the only ones that truly can put things in perspective and enjoy it. There's all these people trying to innovate and create all of these technologies to make life better. But if they don't know Christ, all they're actually doing is working on a bunch of things that might actually end up making your life better because you're the only one that's not going to try to idolize those things and, and think that that's the secret to life. You know God is important, but you can enjoy things for what they're worth. There's a lot of people making great music out there in the world, but if they're sinners, all they're doing is making great music that you're the only one that actually knows how to enjoy because you know that music isn't everything. Music isn't life. Music isn't your God, but it's a good gift that God has given us, and I'm going to enjoy it. And that's how it ends up working. And there's so many things. First Timothy 4.4 4, uh, con- condemns those who are trying to say, you know, you can't eat these foods or you can't get married. And he says, no, everything is made holy through the word of God and prayer. And when we receive things with thanksgiving and a heart of contentment, we actually honor God through these things. Or another passage we don't have time to turn to right now, but Matthew chapter 6. We talked about this last week, which is those realities. Hey, Matthew 6, 19, don't lay up treasures for yourself in this world where moth and rust destroy. Well, in verse 25, he then says, hey guys, don't worry about your life. What are you going to eat or what are you going to drink? Your father knows you need all these things. Consider the birds, how they're well fed. Consider the grass of the field. They don't toil, they don't spin, they don't make clothes. Yet even who? Solomon, in all his glory, was not clothed like one of these. If God so clothes the grass of the field, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And then he actually rebukes the listeners in that passage by saying, all these things the Gentiles seek. The the, the sinners, the pagans, they're out there seeking more, worried about all these things in life. But you, my people, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That's the way he's saying we should think. God is at the center. God is our focus. God is where our satisfaction is coming from. And because God has been put first, then we can put everything else in its rightful place and actually enjoy it and be content and be satisfied. And one valid question you might ask, even as you think through all this, and even the idea of enjoying life, you might say, well, how does that hold up under suffering? And I'm not just talking about the, the garden variety suffering we all experience of life being hard and living in a cursed world and your job could be better. Yeah, so could mine. But what about like the real hard stuff when tragedy hits my life or hits people that I love? What about then? Well, that's a fair question, but that's where this enjoyment, this satisfaction that we're talking about, it's not trivial. It's not frivolous. It's not based on the pleasures of the world. It's actually coming from a deep humility and a gratitude for anything that God gives you. And I'm telling you, that kind of humility, that kind of gratitude, it'll play anywhere. It'll travel anywhere. It'll help you in any circumstance in life, including the worst tragedies. When you've already come to realize, I can't control everything, but God's in control and I'm trusting him. And it's those kind of people that as they go through tragedies, they can, as the old hymn says, trace the rainbow through the rain. And even though there's so many things going wrong, they're still able to see the ways that God is being good, the ways that God is providing, because that's how they always live their lives. And again, what we'll see is we'll get to next week, Lord willing, there is a time to weep. There is a time to mourn. And that's another way it's a wonderful life can be misleading because it doesn't always look like running down the street shouting Merry Christmas to everybody. That's not always what this joy looks like. But I do hope as a result of this passage, we do truly live with a different perspective, a Christian 
perspective, a godly perspective where Christ is first. And because of that, we know where everything else fits and we can actually enjoy that. And again, it might not always look the same and different people are wired different. So joy for you might look different than joy for somebody else, but it should translate and it should be something that the world sees. And I hope that as some people around us are running around trying to make their life bigger or better or get more, that they see some of you and realize they've got something different. What is it that they've got? What is the perspective that they have? And it opens the door to share Christ. Well, there's there's somebody that should be first in our lives. There's a God who made us. There's a king who is coming. And only when we're reconciled with him can we actually enjoy this life. And I really hope that in a world where so many are seeking so much right here in this life that they would see in us something different and that we would be able to live that out. Let's pray together. God, would you please help us to have this perspective? Would you please set us free from the traps of thinking that knowing more will be the secret or that getting more in this world will be what really equals a good life and help us to put you first and knowing that the most important thing is being reconciled to you, God, and that as we do that, everything else falls into its place. And may we be people that really enjoy life. God, I want to pray for those here today that they are disgruntled. They are upset with their lives and grumbling their way through their day-to-day existence. God, help us to repent of that. Help us to go out of here and eat our lunch with gratitude. No matter what it is, it's from the hand of God. And help us to wake up this week and go to work with joy in our hearts because you are in control. And to receive every good thing is a gift from you, knowing that you are the Father of lights, God. And God, I want to pray that you would help us to be a shining light in our community. God, in our culture that can be so consumer-minded, that can all just be about getting a little more, help us to show others that there's nothing at the end of all that. But there is great gain in godliness and contentment. God, let that be something that even just lets the light of Christ shine in our community, in our own hearts. God, so we do want to be thankful. We want to be grateful. God, give us this perspective. God, I know you've used this passage to change my own life. God, I pray that you would change minds and change hearts here today for your glory. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, Maranatha, and have a great Sunday.